This is our last point. Does love win? Now, we're kind of picking a little bit on this book that was called Love Wins by Rob Bell. We don't picking want to pick on him too much, on like we Rob said. Pers- no. You know, he, we agree with a lot of what he says, and, and I'm, I'm sure he's a good guy and whatever. Oh. But he wrote this controversial book. And, um, it's kind of a current topic. But, but we're not specifically picking on him here. We just, the, the idea for this question came to us in these words, and we didn't change it because we thought it was funny. Uh, <laughs> anyway, does, does love win in the end? And what we're really dealing here with is an issue, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to church history. I apologize. I know history is boring and none of you want to hear about it. But there's this guy, Marcion, a long time ago. Marcion is a Christian teacher, so he's not like a bishop or a pope or anything. He's just a teacher in Rome in the middle of the second century. So really, really early in the church. So we're talking maybe 50 years after the last apostle dies. Something like that. So I mean, he could have known people who knew the apostle John. Like this is really, really early, this guy. Um, And he is teaching the Bible. But as he's looking at the Bible, he's thinking you know what, uh, I'm seeing a pretty big difference here. Because he's reading, what do their scriptures consist of back then? Is the New Testament finished being written? It is, uh, by the middle of the second century. It's about, if it's after the last apostle, it's, a, it's been written for about 50 years. The last book was probably written about 50 years before this. So it's out there, but it's not one, it's not like in a bound copy yet, right? There, so if you're a pastor, you don't have one bound copy. You have like individual letters and you might have a couple of the gospels and some of Paul's writings but as time goes on um, they start to collect these and eventually you have like um, an edition of Paul's letters you know all of Paul's letters combined into one bound book and you might have an edition of all four gospels bound into one book and then you might have another edition of like some other random letters you know Peter's and John's letters and stuff like that bound into one book so you'd have kind of a collection of a few of the scriptures okay so there wasn't really yeah, like a bound copy yet. And, and there was really, no one even thought about putting it in one copy because we have it all there anyway. Like, why would you need it in one edition? That would be kind of unwieldy, as we have come to find out they are kind of unwieldy. Unless you print super, super tiny. But uh, he's reading the Old Testament, and he's reading the New Testament. And you know what? They don't really match up because we don't have one Bible, do we? There, let me see. There we go. We have, we have two Bibles, Right? We have an Old Testament and a New Testament, okay? And the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, so it's a little different, right? And the New Testament is written in Greek, so it's, they're, they're clearly distinct sections of the Bible. Uh, and then there's books within those. And as he's reading it, he starts to notice, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, God wasn't very nice, right? I mean, what were some of the, like, he killed the guy who reached over to, to save the ark from falling on the ground, and uh, he, he orders the Israelites to commit genocide against the Canaanites. What is up with that? I don't... Well, that's another class. <laughs> uh, we're not going to explain that one Tune today. in next month. Uh, yeah, or... there you go. Uh, he does all these other horrible, horrible things, right? And he tells... He gives these people this law that's just 600-some laws within the Jewish law. Impossible to follow. You know, he's doing all these horrible things, right? So, so the God of the Old Testament is clearly... Uh, an angry God, right? But the God of the New Testament. Uh, you know, Jesus comes down, come to me little children. He's saving people. He's healing people. He says, I, you know, 
He's weeping. He's weeping. Yeah, he's crying. He's so sad for things. And he's just this loving God. And so you've got this angry God for Marcion. This is what Marcion thinks. You've got this angry God, and you've got this loving God. Very, very different. Now, none of us ever think this way, right? Right? Do you do your quiet time throughout the whole Bible? Or do you spend more time in the New Testament? Be honest. It's a little bit easier to understand. I get lost in the middle of Jeremiah and Ezekiel sometimes. What about the Psalms? With wheels within wheels. The Psalms I can do one at a time. Like, you know, the Proverbs I can do one a day or something. Yeah. But some of, especially the Prophets or Leviticus, what in the world is up with that book? You know, it's useless. So we don't spend time in it because, because not all scripture is profitable for doctrine, correction, rebuking, right? It's the opposite of what Peter said. Yeah. Yeah. Peter says, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for those things, for doctrine, rebuking, correction, and righteousness. So, except Esther. Yeah, except Esther. Oh, sorry. Why is that even in there? No, uh, so this is what Marcin is saying. There's this difference. You've got this angry God, you've got this loving God. And so what you end up with is not one God. He's not even a modalist. He's not saying you have different manifestations, although he's a little bit there. What he's saying is, you have two gods, right? You've got this devil God and this angel God. This kind of the good and the bad, right? It's kind of this dualism between this yin-yang you know, between the good and the bad, battling it out. And uh, the, the bad God created mankind, made us evil, then gave us all these rules to follow, started killing people, and wrote this Old Testament for a horrible guy. But then the head God, this good God, he's like, that's not nice. So he came down as Jesus, and he made everything right, and he's gracious, and he loves children, and he's, you know, dying first on the cross. And so there's this difference Okay, this is what Marcin is arguing. There's a difference between the God of the Old Testament. That's a different God than the God of the New Testament. Now, we may not go as far as that sometimes, but we're surely guilty of sometimes distinguishing the two. Um, I want to look at a few passages just to kind of open this up and see if this is right. Uh, turn to Jeremiah 31, 31, 33. Now, this is in the middle of one of the major prophets, so I didn't read this thing for ages. just stumbled upon this one day. Uh, <laughs> it's actually a really good passage. We quote it a lot in our churches and stuff. This is an Old Testament. The book of Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. It's a prophet. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. And so this is Old Testament. So this God should be vindictive here, okay? And, and just to give you a little background, don't start reading it yet. You guys are going to ruin the surprise. <laughs> just to give a little background in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of these prophets who's coming down, and God tells him at the beginning of his ministry, he says, you're going to preach, but no one's going to listen. You're going to call them out on their sin, because I'm going to tell you to, but no one is going to change. How's that for motivational speaking right there? Yes, that's what I want to do, God. Work without any results. But he's coming down to Jeremiah. The message he has so far has been judgment, judgment, judgment. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill you, and you're all going to go to hell. This is the message, right? You, I told you what to do. God says, I gave you the law. You didn't do it. Why didn't they do it? They were bad. They were unable. They had original sin. I told you what to do, and you didn't do it. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to judge you, and there is no hope for you. You're not even going to change when I tell you to change. Until we get to some of the later parts of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, 
So in, in, in contrast to the old covenant of the law, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant of the law through Moses. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So he's talking about the future. I'm going to do this in the future. I will put my law within you. So it's not going to be outside of you and you have to follow it. I'm going to put my law within, within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What is he saying? What is this? This is the new covenant, right? What's another word for covenant? Testament. testament. Yeah, this is the promise of the new testament. And he says, you can't do it on your own. You are incapable. I don't know if you noticed this relates to some of the stuff we were talking about before. You are incapable of doing it on your own. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come down and I'm going to put my law within you to change you. So not, not so that uh, you'll be judged all the time. In other words, within you, it's just going to spring out of you, the disobedience of the law. So that's who we are, right? Christ came down, paid the price for us, we're covered, we're justified before God. And because we have the Holy Spirit in us, this change is just happening in us. And it's not of our own doing. It's, it's, it's being done by God. He's doing this to us. And we're participating with it in the good works that he pre- prepared beforehand for us to follow in. So this is Jeremiah 31, 33. So this God doesn't look too vindictive here. This, this looks like a pretty loving God. Because even the people who rejected him, even the ones who are going to sacrifice his son, he came down to save them. So pretty loving. Let's look at another passage. Uh, let's look at Revelation 19, 11 to 19. Now that one was in the angry book, so it should have been angry, but it wasn't. This one's in the loving book, so it should be flowers and bunnies. Revelation 19. If I can find it here. It's at the end of the Bible, right? This, I, I think so. Okay. Are, are you on the right side? Or? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm good. Okay. Revelation 19. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I should slip to the next slide. Before we read this, uh, I want to... I'm going to skip to the next slide here because this is what we should see, okay? We should see Buddy Jesus in this passage if we're right, right? We should see, hey, guys, he's the Fonzie Jesus. Like, everything's cool. This is who we expect to see in this passage because we're in the New Testament. This is the loving God talking here. Revelation 19. And so this is talking about when Jesus is going to come back. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. Yay, heaven's been opened. This is good, right? And behold, a white horse. That sounds beautiful. Then one sitting on it, who is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he, whoa, he judges and makes war. This is Jesus coming back on the horse. He's going to make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, which are like crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's mysterious. He's not looking as much like... Buddy Jesus, but it gets worse. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Why is he in a bloody robe? Is it his own blood? We're going to find out later. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He's going to kill everybody. Another word for the nations is the Gentiles. So that would be us. 
unless you're Jewish, and then I guess you're good. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That sounds fun. He will tread the winepress. He will tread the winepress of his fury of the wrath of God, the Lord uh, of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh was the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What does it mean he will tread? It says he has blood on his hem and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Not buddy Jesus. This is Jesus returning to judge the world. What what does it mean he's treading the winepress? Do you guys know how wine is made? You put put them in the thing, the winepress, and then you stomp on them, right? What does that get on the hem of your dress? The The grape juice, which looks like blood let's this actually in reading this i was like this sounds really like a similar passage that i've i feel like i've heard before let's look at that isaiah 63 1 to 6 sounds like a song so in in revelation he's kind of quoting or he's alluding to isaiah 63 which is in the old testament so i do expect to see angry god here but uh isaiah 63 1 to 6 this is such an interesting passage so he's alluding to this in revelation this is jesus Who's going to come and do this? Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? So Edom is a Gentile nation right next to Israel, and they're the enemies of Israel. And God always says, I'm going to judge them. So he's coming back from Edom. He's already judged them in crimson garments from Basra. Why are his garments red? Blood. Yes. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteous, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Seeing some parallels here? I have trodden the winepress alone. This is Jesus speaking. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So the picture we have here is Jesus walking Jesus buddy Jesus walking through a wine press and the little people are the grapes and they're getting caught and wedged in between his toes and he's popping them and stomping on them and the grape juice is splattering up on his is anyone uncomfortable at this point? his grape juice is splattering up on the blood is just covering his garments and he's, they're running but nope got one got three like he's just going around stomping the wine press of God's fury for the day verse 4 for the day of vengeance was in my heart For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. This is Jesus. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Bunnies and flowers. There you go. This is Have not a great night, everybody. <laughs> this is, uh, this is not yeah, are you guys feeling good now? This is not a happy Jesus. He's coming back and he's judging people. He's stomping on them and the blood is splattering. And this is quoted or alluded to in Revelation nineteen. So I don't know if we've made our point effectively enough, but it's not always anger in the Old Testament. It's love in the Old Testament in some places, but there's also justice. And this is one of the things we have to talk about with God is we have to keep these in balance, the justice and the love. Because without the justice, the love is meaningless and vice versa. And you have to hold both of those if you're going to have a proper view of God. And it's not different from testament to testament. It's the same throughout the Bible. A lot of the New Testament is just quoting the Old Testament. It's essentially a commentary on the Old Testament with some new revelation in there, explaining things. So they're not completely different, and we need to stop viewing them as kind of 
different books and especially when you start reading them both because I feel like I'm glad we're doing that journey through the prophets right now because that's been really cool uh, anyway I'm going to kick it over to you now on, right. that, on that wonderful note <laughs> yes um, let's see I'm trying to think of a good segue out of stomping the grapes of wrath and, <laughs> I don't know is it the grapes of wrath? Is that where that I don't know. I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> if, if not, we should start that. Let's we start should. using it that way. Um, Just change what things mean. Yeah. Well, <laughs> why not? Seriously. Yeah, I know. So, with what uh, what Isaac said uh, covered a lot of the things that that I could say. Um, a couple other things that I would want to draw out. Let's see. First of all. God is love and God is justice, right? Those are both central to his character. And when we start pitting them against each other, we're attacking the very character of God. And so one of the things just to keep in mind always is that whatever the Bible reveals about God is in balance with everything else. So... Uh, not only love and justice, you could talk about any any other sorts of things, and uh, we probably don't have time to get into a lot of examples about that, but the general idea is they're always held in balance. God is perfect. He is not love and then a bunch of other stuff. He is just. And the, uh, like Isaac said, the justice and the love work together. And one way that it works together that I think we can all identify with is when we're thinking about justice here on the earth, right? We tend to, we like mercy, we like grace, and those are really good things, not knocking those. I would shudder to think where I would be without those things. But when we try cases in court, what kind of judge do we expect? A fair, impartial, yeah. Can he show mercy sometimes? If, if you know, in, in the certain circumstances, yeah. But part of being a good judge is sometimes showing mercy. But more often, you want a judge who is fair. Otherwise, it's, it's not just. It's corruption, right? If we get a judge who's letting everybody off all the time, it's not justice. And so I think when we, when we, when we embrace this view and we say, that God's love trumps his justice, we're, we're kind of devaluing justice because not only do we want things to be fair, you know, in a certain sense, you know, with, with some mercy and grace built in, but when we advocate for other people, we really want fairness. We want, we need the people who abuse other people who kill other people to be held accountable. Otherwise, it's not true justice. If all we're doing is kind of collecting the wreckage from what they have left behind and trying to piece together lives and let, letting the evil perpetrators go off, that's not true justice. That's not even loving, right? We, um, we want to see that together. And there's something else I was going to say there. Yeah, basically, just, just that idea that Weak people don't just need care, they need protection. And so that idea of protecting the weak is part of, part of love, but also part of justice. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Okay, there's only one other thing that I would add, 
we talked about how you know we we kind of have God versus Jesus in this view, and we have um, you know kind of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. We have um, maybe wrath versus love. One other thing we have, which is kind of obvious, right? We have Israel versus the church. And that's another danger of this view, is that this is, doesn't necessitate it, but opens the door to anti-Semitism, saying, well, you know, the Jews are, are the people of this wrathful God, and so they don't deserve the love of Christ. That Historically, those connections have been made. So we need to be careful about that. But there's also something that happens on the flip side in, in some kind of fringe circles in Christianity. Um, we start to say, well, you know, because the Jews are in line with the Old Testament, they can be saved through the Old Testament still. They don't need Jesus. And so that's another area where this view, this, this creating this distinction between the Old and the New Testaments and kind of blocking things off kind of creates a, well, you know, Jews are doing their own thing. That's cool. We'll see them in heaven. No big deal. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that once Christ came, he made a way. He was the Messiah for the Jews. And he was adding in graciously the Gentiles. Or the Bible calls us an ingrafted branch. Right? So, like, um, we're now part of their family, the family of faith. And that's pretty much all I have for this one in particular. Any other thoughts or questions on this? Are there other places you think we might see this dichotomy working out? One of the things I love that, that Isaac said is talking about the, the bi- books of the Bible that we tend to value or devalue. Um, anyone ever seen those little Gideon Bibles? Like the, the little ones that they hand out, not the ones at the um, hotels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? The New Testament with the Psalms and Proverbs. That's all I need. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, forget. Oh, I don't know, Adam. Well, Abraham. No, we don't need it. <laughs> um, Creation. Moses. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um. So so, there's just one way where we see. You know, they they obviously have great intentions, and I'm not knocking them at all. But it's dangerous if we we forget that all of Scripture applies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else? This? No, that's actually a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I didn't mention that because I thought I was running out of time. But um, this is so early. I mean, Marcion's second century, right? So he is the first guy to really make up his own New Testament. And this is what causes the rest of the church, when, they, when he makes up his bad New Testament, everyone else is like, whoa, we need to actually define, you know, universally what's in this thing, or else people are just going to be making stuff up. So actually what he does is, okay, so he can't deal with the Old Testament. So anything in the New Testament that makes reference to the Old Testament is a bad deal for him, right? So he picks out the Gospels and Paul's letters. Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 2nd Peter, all that stuff, Jew, that's just all gone. All right, so just forget about it. It's not in Marcion's Bible. So he takes the Gospels. Matthew is a Gospel written to the Jews, right, to the Jewish community. It's very Old Testament. I mean, Matthew's mostly quoting the Old Testament and saying, having Jesus' commentary on it. So that one's gone, right? Mm-hmm. Mark is a lot of what Matthew says, so that one's gone. John 
it just quotes the Old Testament way too much. That one's gone. So he has Luke, right? The only Gentile gospel writer is Luke. But Luke makes several references to the Old Testament and quotes it. So he sort of took scissors and cut out of Luke, edited a version of Luke that he liked. That was his gospel. Then he takes Paul's letters, but Paul mentions the Old Testament way too much. So several books he just loses out of Paul, and several others he cuts out the parts about the Old Testament that he doesn't like. So he has tattered Luke and tattered a few of Paul's letters, and that's his New Testament. Hey, can I throw in a little trivia here? Yeah. Who in our country's history did the same thing? One of our founding fathers. There you go. Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson did the same thing. Yeah. Yes. Not, not to cut out the Old Testament. He cut out everything supernatural, mm-hmm. which he might as well just cut out the whole thing. But I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, he gets like tattered Luke, tattered Paul's letters. That's his New Testament. I mean, so when the church sees that, they're like, that is not right. We, we have much more than that. And they sort of, then they're like, okay they define it universally, even though everyone kind of knew what it was. When he starts to draw out what belongs in his New Testament, we actually had to be like, okay, this is officially what's in ours. So, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty big problem if you start cutting things out of the Bible to you get to decide what's in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, and I like how you tie inerrancy in there because I hadn't thought about that. But, but that's essentially what we're doing, right? Is we're saying, well... I don't think God actually said this. Exactly, yeah. So we'll, we'll start editing. Yeah. We're the judge of what God could have said or not. If we yeah. don't like it, he didn't say it. Which again goes back to our first topic. Plagianism. Everything, Everything ties together. To yeah, because we get to decide and we have perfect choice. Yeah. Yes, yes. So. so any other questions about this? or things? How do you guys see this played out in the American church? I mean, we've already talked about quiet time, never reading the Old Testament. Do we ever use that contrast in our sermons? Do you guys ever see that? No? The Old Testament says, but... One of the things that I think is damaging about this, and and this idea is definitely in the church, is that somehow this problem arose that God didn't intend, because the good God is the higher God in Marcion's view, and this lesser God did all these evil things, and he had to come in and correct him. But that somehow things sort of got out of hand for God, Right? The Satan came along, or the snake, or whoever, the evil God, if you're Marcion, came along, the writer of the Old Testament, and everything sort of got out of hand for God. And that the New Testament in Jesus is God kind of sweeping up the mess and like fixing it or gluing it all back together. Is that what happened? I mean, that's not at all what you see in the Old and New Testaments. It is a continuous story from beginning to end. That's why you can't chop it up. Is because God says things in the beginning that matter in the end, and it all kind of feeds into itself, and it's this progress of revelation that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and like more and more complex and more and more awesome as it goes along. And so, to, when we parse it up like that, one of the one of the effects of that that you see in our culture is this idea that uh, it all kind of got out of hand, and God had to like fix it all last minute, and that's what He's doing in the gospel. No, He He meant to do it from the beginning. You know, I mean, look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the beginning of the Old Testament. And he says, I'm going to fix this all, and this is how I'm going to do it. And it doesn't give you the name Jesus, and it doesn't give you all the explanation about the cross or anything like that, but it's just a real simple presentation. That's called the first gospel. Uh, it's proto-evangelion or whatever, mm-hmm. but it means first gospel. In the, in the book of Genesis uh, is where God says, uh, how, how does it all go? The seed... Uh, he's talking to the serpent and the woman and he says you're going to bite his heel but he's going to bruise your head mm-hmm. uh, I love in the passion you know by Mel Gibson where he shows that scene in the beginning kind of tying in Genesis and the, and the New Testament uh, but yeah it's been planned from the beginning 
And so that's one of the issues I think that this affects is it, it parses it all up um, when that's not at all what, what we believe. We're longing for it, right? Isn't the end of Revelation it says the last words are like, even so come Lord Jesus. We're longing for the end because we know what's going to happen. Okay. Seriously, so what does it accomplish? Essentially. This is, one, this is a huge issue and we didn't actually put this as one of ours. I think it's an effect of some of our the things we talked about, but this is a huge issue, and, and Josh could, could speak more of this, like, um, pragmatism is a big problem in America. How do you, like, what, what makes it true if it works? What makes it good if it works? If it's useful. Yeah, yeah what is, like exactly, it. is it useful? What's the outcome? It's pragmatism. And so you're saying, why would I do it if it's not going to work? Is that what our actions are based on in the New Testament and in the Old Testament? What are we told to do? Be pragmatic? Obedient. Thank you. We do it because we're told to. Turn to uh, Matthew 28:19. We never read the verse before that, do we? Matthew 28:19. He's telling us what to do. He's given us the great commission. And you look at that and you go, that's pragmatic. He's telling you to go out and evangelize, right? He's telling you to go out and evangelize so that you'll save people, right? If you're Charles Finney, that's what you think it means. Charles Grandison. <laughs> Charles, his middle name's Grandison, yeah. which makes him awesome. Charles Grandison Finney. That'll preach. But uh, let's see. So verse 19, this is the one we always quote. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's telling us what to do. Go out, be missionaries, be evangelists, go out and save people and uh, edify the church, build each other up, teach each other. Why do we do that? Because it works? Because we're going to accomplish something? No. Why do we do it? Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. So why do we go? Why is the therefore there? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and he's telling you what to do, and you better do it. That's why we do it. Not because it's pragmatic or it's going to work. We're not called to save people. We're called to preach the gospel. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, I think we only have a minute or two left. So if, are there any concluding thoughts before we wrap up? We'll be here for questions for a little bit after. Yeah. If you have something yeah. that's really eating at you. Does love win? <laughs> have we answered that? It, it does, yeah, but justice at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Love wins yeah. and justice and God. Yeah. yeah. What can you get one of those uses? I think they're online. I don't know. <laughs> oh, Buddy Christ. I'm sorry. Buddy Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there are... Uh, there are eva- I'm, I have to get me one of those now and put it on my dashboard. There are uh, evaluations in the back if you didn't get one. We'd love if you guys would fill out an evaluation. Uh, if you can, fill out different ones because we actually... Uh, We'll send them to us and evaluate us separately, I yeah. guess. You can do it on the same one and just differentiate, I guess. But uh, if you could if fill those out uh, before you go, we'd really appreciate that. It just helps us to um, better our teaching. And yep. Tell We're still us, growing you know, and learning. Did you think so. the class was helpful? You know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for coming. We really yeah. appreciate it.